Hi, Bob. I am a drug addict and an alcoholic. I'm sure even my introduction will, you know, make somebody turn just a little at a general service conference, but... <clears throat> it's the reality of it's the reality of who I am. Uh, I met Bob. Bob's a good guy. He's a lot of fun. He's fun to talk to. <laughs> he said, "How'd you like to be introduced?" You know, I said, "Well, how about as the heretic?" <laughs> <laughs> I think you always make a mistake when you ask a vegetarian who doesn't eat meat and doesn't eat sugar and salt and doesn't smoke and doesn't drink. Caffeine of any kind to be the banquet speaker. <laughs> First, it's hard on me, which only makes me want to make it hard on you. You know. <laughs> well, let's talk about your nutritional habits for a minute, and then we'll get back to the. I um. I was born about. Uh, Fifty-one and a half years ago here, happy, joyous, and free. Happy, joyous, and free. And that state of grace was maintained probably for about a year. And then I started to walk. And I, like so many of us, grew up with an alcoholic father and a co-alcoholic mother. And it seems that once you begin to walk, you create immense problems within the household. You are now an identity of your own. You're now a personality of your own. You now have a lot of needs. Before, they were pretty basic needs. Now they get, they get bigger. So being unable to cope with all that, these two people, with what limited information they had, took that happy, joyous, and free child, that perfect little instrument that God created, and shattered it into a thousand pieces. And my life began in that shattered state. Twenty-six years later, I rolled into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> Next month, I'll be clean and sober for 25 years. And, uh, absolutely! <laughs> And Alcoholics Anonymous, because sometimes, you know, people say, ah, this guy, man, he doesn't like AA, you know. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous for me is very simply this. It's a table. It's a table with real strong legs on it, on which I have begun the process over the last 25 years of putting this puzzle back together. Now, all the tools that I have found and all the information that I have gotten to help me put this puzzle back together has come from all kinds of places and all kinds of sources. But the, but the table is where I'm performing this little feat. And if I lose the table, I'm screwed. I got no place to put the puzzle. So don't misconstrue anything I say because I talk about a lot of things. Because I think recovery is a full package deal, see, for me. Understand I speak for myself. I don't speak for the committee that asked me. Thank them very much, the speaker committee. I'm not speaking for general service in Ohio. Don't tar and feather any of these folks, you know, if you get nuts before I go home, see? And the other thing you might want to think about is that everything I say up here is my own opinion. 
and I'm very prone to change it occasionally. So <clears throat> I may say something tonight <clears throat> that gets you absolutely nuts, just keeps you up all night long. <clears throat> And I'll change my mind on the airplane on the way home. <laughs> so if the stuff I talk about doesn't apply to you, I wouldn't get too crazy about it. Just figure that it doesn't apply to you. I've discovered most alcoholics have a great deal of difficulty with the concept that we can hold two different points of view and neither one of us are wrong. <laughs> so mine may not be yours, but I'll share a little of this story. See, once I started to grow up, I suppose the biggest secret that I had was that something was wrong with me. Now, I didn't know why I believed that. I don't know, didn't know where it came from, but I did know one thing. I knew that something was wrong with me, and if I let you see the real me, whoever that was, you would go away. You would leave me alone. And I also knew that I wasn't enough, and that applied to situations outside my life. Whatever the situation is, I mean, I can remember being 15 years sober and it, I still, in any kind of a social situation or a business situation, you might not guess it by the way I behaved, but inside I knew I wasn't enough. And it didn't matter if I was speaking at a skid row meeting of AA or in a high level uh, executive meeting at a motion picture studio, it didn't matter. Inside of me, I kept the secret I wasn't enough. So one thing I learned real early on, if you, something's wrong with you and you're not enough, then you got to look good at all costs. <clears throat> and one thing I also learned is, if you're not enough and something's wrong with you, you can't ask questions. See? Because people who ask questions are stupid. I mean, that's what I learned being a kid. I mean, I asked a question, I was told I was stupid. Back up a little bit. From whose mind? crawling across the street. De dedication to duty. God, I love it. I like to get close to things now. I used to back up from everything. Oh, what do you want? Okay. Let's get to getting clean and sober. I never talk about drinking anymore. My story bores me, and because it bores me, it would probably bore you. And I'm usually bored when anybody over 15 years sober tells me their story because it's lost all its punch. You know? It just, it just, you know, guys, God, you guys out there 30, 35 years sober, get some new material. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't even entertain you anymore, you know? Well, then I was running down Broadway and a guy shot me in the back of the head with this gun. You know, I mean, it's not... Let the newcomers tell their story, man. It's still got fire in it, you know. They, they, let the guy two, three years get up there and tell his story. It's all he knows. See, and he still hurts. Boy, when he talks about that, that's a reality to him, you know. <clears throat> his vultures are still biting at his ass coming from, you know. He's a, and he's so grateful. Oh, God, I'm glad to be here, you know. Some people will never reach this day in sobriety, and a lot of people will reach this day in sobriety, and I'm one of the people that reached this day in sobriety. I hit a day when finally being grateful for being sober was no longer enough. 
it was not enough. It was not going to sustain me one more day. And I'll tell you how I got to that point, and I'll tell you what I did about it. And if some of what I say makes you uncomfortable, I heard a wonderful Al-Anon speaker one time. She said her, her sponsor told her that now that she had, was into recovery, she had a responsibility. And her responsibility was to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. <laughs> I may disturb you. 26 years of age, I rolled in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And <clears throat> like most of us, uh, I picked a sponsor who reminded me exactly of my father. Treated me horrible. Absolutely horrible. Yelled, screamed, called me names. Sahara, do this. Shut up. Make the coffee. Move the chairs. You don't know anything, goddamn dummy. Don't say anything for 90 days. <laughs> I was quite comfortable. I was, uh, uh, <laughs> Okay with me, I was right at home. I wasn't put in under any stress by that situation at all. So, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's bad that we do that. I don't know that it is bad. I, I'm not sure that it's bad at all, but it seems to be a very common practice. I don't know that if somebody had come up to me to sponsor me, and they had said to me, look, understand, you are an incredibly beautiful, gentle, wonderful human being with a disease. And I'm going to take your hand for a while and help start you on this path of love and of recovery and of truth and beauty. I'm not too sure we would have had a hell of a lot to say to each other. You know? Uh, I probably would have just walked off. So being abused was quite comfortable and it was okay. <clears throat> now, prior to getting the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had one problem in social situations which is like, when you're, something's wrong with you and you're not enough, I could never just go somewhere. I always had to get prepared, you know, try and get as much information as I could about where the place was, what it looked like, who was going, what was going to be there, what were they going to say, and then if I couldn't get out of it, I'd go ahead and go. <laughs> and then when I got there, I'd stand back with my back against the wall and I'd watch the people, and I'd see how they behaved. And I'd see how they stood and how they shook hands, how they laughed, oh, 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 oh. <clears throat> how they talked, I'd listen to what they're talking about. And once I was comfortable that I could do what they're doing, then I would walk out into this room and I would begin to shake hands like they shook hands and laugh, oh, oh, oh like they laughed and talk about what they talk about. The sadness in all that is that whatever I was wasn't enough. See? And whoever I was, I had to leave him on the wall because I couldn't let these people meet him. But when I gave up the drugs and alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous, that didn't change. That didn't go away. So one thing I knew here is I couldn't let you find out something was wrong with me and that I wasn't enough. So I did with you what I did with any other group of people in the world. I watched you. I watched to see how you behaved. I watched to see what a good AA was. Because I wanted to be a good AA so that you couldn't throw me out or make me go away. 
The very first thing I learned by first-hand experience about a good AA is that under any circumstances, a good AA is always fine. <clears throat> I'd learned this at meetings through this kind of a situation. I'd walk up to Bill and shake Bill's hand and say, Hi, Bill, how are you? Bill would say, I'm fine, Bob. How are you? And I'd say, I'm fine. And Bill would walk off. And then Henry would rush up and say, Did you hear what happened to Bill? I'd say, No, God, what happened to Bill? Oh, well, his wife served him with divorce papers this morning. He lost his job. His kid ran away from home and he repossessed his car. <laughs> I'd think, <clears throat> okay. I get the message. No matter what's going on, I'm fine. <laughs> so I continue to go to meetings and continue to follow instructions and continue to not drink and continue to not use drugs and started getting crazier day by day. Each day of continuing sobriety, the loonier I got. And other people were saying it's wonderful and beautiful and everything's fine. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not doing too good, you know. I never once in the preceding 26 years of my life contemplated killing myself. I had to get sober and come to AA. And, and, and then it became almost a daily solution, you know. It's like in the morning, I think, well, what's the solution to today? I think death. <laughs> you know, blow your brains out, Robert. It'll be a better day. You know, just don't, don't show up for it. Well, no one was talking about this, and I was having another problem, which is I had a lot of people talking to me when I was home alone. <laughs> and mornings were horrible. Mornings were the worst. I'd wake up in the morning, and it's still this way, see, because my drug of choice in recovery is anxiety. I can't, I got nothing else to use anymore, see? So... <laughs> I gotta get get it going, you know. Just give me some little thing to worry about, and I can just really get a good case of anxiety going. Then I feel better, you know. <laughs> I feel alive, you know. It's like I always thought that worry was a justification for living. That somehow, if you weren't worrying, you weren't living properly. I learned that at home, as a small child, worry was a way of life. I figured it was important. I figured if it was, came easy, it was bad. came hard, it was good. You know, I learned all the things that work at, fly right in the face of any kind of spiritual way of life. So I'm going to meetings, getting crazy, listening to these voices, waking up in the morning, my mind would say, have you ever noticed how your mind seems separate from you in the morning? Not attached? It's like it's sitting on the headboard, kind of looking down, says, good morning. Glad you're up. <laughs> Been wanting to talk to you all night. First thing I want you to know is you didn't get enough sleep. I may have had 15 hours, doesn't matter. I haven't had enough. My mind will say, well, you shouldn't go into work, you know, tired as you are. Stay home. Now you really can't stay home. Stay home one more time, they're going to fire you. you got to go in, so you better go in. But if you go in, you're in real trouble because uh, as tired as you are, you're going to screw up and they're going to fire you. So now what are you going to do? you probably got enough money to last you maybe six weeks. 
and then you're in the street. Oh, yeah, by the way, that bump just below your knee, that's not a bruise, it's bone cancer. <laughs> what are you going to do about that? Are you going to go to meetings and talk about it, or are you just going to be chicken shit, stay home, rot to death? <laughs> so I would be awake a full 12 and a half seconds. I'm unemployed, broke, living in the streets, dying from cancer. I never shared a room at a convention or at any kind of function the first few years I was sober with any alcoholic that jumped up to greet the day. Oh, boy. Another day of life. And I couldn't understand why, because I thought I was the only one that was having this morning conversation with myself. And the tragedy, of course, is that I'm doing that to me. Nobody else is there saying this stuff. That's what I'm doing to me. So I keep going to meetings, I keep listening to voices, nobody's talking about voices, everybody's fine. I'm picking out the concrete abutment on the freeway I'm going to drive my car into, you know. And I would, so I eventually what I did is I created what I call my recovery personality. I got a little from this sponsor and a little from that sponsor and a little from this speaker and a little from this speaker and a little from this person and a little from that person and I created a person. And I would, I would take him to meetings. It's almost like in the parking lot. I'd sort of put him together like, you know, Superman comes out of the phone booth. It's like I'd leave my car and I'd, I'd become Bob Earl, alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. Recovering alcoholic. How are you, Bob? Fine, thanks. And as I got loonier and loonier and loonier, control became more and more important. The way you can tell you're in real trouble is if you're in a real control. It's like, I went to the same meetings every week, parked in the same spot, sat in the same chair, drank coffee from the same cup, said almost the same thing, <laughs> waited to the end to try and be profound. Well, in the interim, I'm trying to kill myself, you know, think of ways to kill myself. But I'm Bob Earl, I'm fine. So I would walk into these meetings, by now I'm a couple of years sober. Gone, gone, we're talking gone. Just bringing the body, nothing upstairs working at all. Someone would say, how are you, Bob? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Honesty would have been, when somebody came up and said, how are you, Bob? If I had dropped to my knees, grabbed them around the ankles, <clears throat> and had begun to sob uncontrollably on their shoes, you know. <laughs> I can't, I can't take one more goddamn day. You know. <clears throat> but if I said that to you, that I couldn't take one more day, then you'd know my secret would be out. Something was wrong with me and I'm not enough. And you'd make me go away. So I kept bounding along, being fine. And sponsors, who sense that you're going over the edge, <clears throat> give you more to do. That's all. They gave me crazier people to sponsor, more panels and more institutions that were further away so I'd have to drive further. And life went on. Insane, stark raving mad, crazy babies. Oh, great, thank you very much. Very
very powerful. <clears throat> but all it did was activity, activity. I was busy, and thank God for the busy work, because it kept me around, you know, and I kept going to them stupid panels. Didn't like being there, hated the people, couldn't care if they ever got the message, right? I'm, I'm, I'm busy just trying to keep from killing myself. Screw them, you know, we got, <clears throat> I got major problems here. They're locked up getting three goddamn meals a day with somebody to look after them. You know, what the hell do they care, you know? I, I'm out here, man, and I'm dying, you know? <laughs> I used to go to meetings at Camarillo, walk down the main drive, you know, under the, under the eucalyptus trees and think, you know, it's not half bad here. Not half bad. By then, I was a few years sober. I went up there to visit my brother-in-law and sit and talk with him. He was having a good time, you know. God, he was making baskets and ashtrays and enjoying himself and painting stuff. Yeah. Yes. I mean, oh, God. You know, if I could just stay here for a couple of weeks, I'd be okay, you know. All I need is a little rest. Just a little rest. How are you, Bob? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. Because I didn't feel safe to tell you anything else. Nobody else was saying anything else. People weren't crying at meetings or falling apart or being angry and pounding on the table and crawling around the floor. Everybody was sitting there. Suit, tie, no vulgarity. <laughs> we won't just get into that one. <clears throat> You know, it's dangerous stuff, you know. You put a guy in a suit and tie and tell him not to swear. Oh. Particularly if he just got out after 45 years in the penitentiary or something. You might, you might want to give him just a little slack, you know. Just give him a couple of inches just in case he wants to say hell once or something. Because you're not going to get to meet the real guy. And if you don't meet the real guy, when he comes busting loose out of that suit, it may be chasing four-year-old boys through the bushes, you know, down at the... And if he's your general service representative, you're going to be really embarrassed. <laughs> Better to let him just get it out, you know. It's like, it's like I had this, I had this sensation that that you people wanted me to be emotionally neat and tidy, you know. And that was real comfortable because at home, they wanted me to be emotionally neat and tidy, too. Forget the fact that home was World War III. That's not, you know, relevant to the situation. I was to be quiet, calm, cool, collected, out of sight, stay out of the way, or get killed. Get killed. And if you had given me a, a, a place here where I could express my feelings, I would have been screwed. I couldn't have done it anyway because I didn't know what they were. You guys want to improve your recovery? Cry more. Cry more. You don't cry as much as you want to, you know it. Why don't you cry? And the woman sitting next to you is probably mad that you don't. I mean, they started meetings in Southern California for women who are in relationships with men who aren't in touch with their feelings. The logical question, of course, is why are you in the relationship? But I'm not going to ask that one, you know. Uh, <laughs> they just tell us how we don't, you know, emote. We don't express our feelings. They're right. We don't. We really don't. Do I know why? Ladies, 
Well, I was three years old, man, went breezing down the bicycle, down the driveway on my tricycle, I fell off. Tore the skin off my knee, and I looked down for the first time in my life, saw real blood, mine. Not a pleasant situation. <clears throat> went into the house with tears streaming down my face. Streaming down my face. Told my dad was sitting in the chair, drinking his beer, I have my knees. Stop crying. But I can't stop crying with my knees. If you don't stop crying, man, I'm going to give you something to cry for. Yeah, you're laughing, guys, right? Why? You heard the line, man. But I can't stop crying with my knees. All right, I didn't give birth to an idiot. I got the message. Don't cry. Fifteen years later, fourteen years later, I was seventeen years of age. I laid in Georgia Street Receiving Hospital in downtown Los Angeles with a surgeon about to remove a couple of bullets from my body that belonged to the Los Angeles Police Department. And I told him to take his anesthesia and stick it in his ass. <clears throat> my father would have been proud. I unfortunately fainted, but that's beside the point. I had a moment that I looked good. <laughs> and I wasn't conscious for the one when I looked bad. <laughs> I have a friend that says we were raised in a household with the very foundation of those households and the walls of those households, the fabric of those households was lies. And those lies were called love. And then we wonder why, in recovery, we can't let people love us and we don't know how to love others. So I'm walking around here. I can't tell you I'm nuts. I can't tell you I'm going to die in sobriety sitting in my chair. I'm just going to disintegrate. I am so crazy. I can't cry. I'm not going to cry. I let you see that part of me. I can't do that. i got to just be fine. I managed to maintain that until I was almost five years sober, four and a half years sober. And four and a half years sober, I had to turn to the one <clears throat> being for help that I had avoided for four and a half years, and that's God. Okay? And the reason I steered clear of God is I'd ask people at meetings, I'd say, well, what kind of God do you understand? And they'd say... Well, my God is a loving Father. I go, what else? <laughs> you know, give me something. Give me something that I can work on. Give me something that I can connect with because I have no conception of what a hell a loving Father is. I have absolutely no idea. I can't. I'm not going to turn to God, boy. Every time I thought about praying, my mind would say to me, "Don't be stupid." You know, if you want to do something really ignorant, Bob, go stand out in an open field and say to God, I want what's coming to me. <laughs> I figured if I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, I'd wind up 20 years sober working in a men's 12-step house washing dishes, talking about gratitude celibate. That's about the best I believed I could hope for. So four and a half years sober, absolutely out of my mind, I sat in a small apartment and screamed at the top of my lungs at the ceiling of my apartment. I said, If you're not there, I'm fucked! 
I know the prayer may rankle a couple of you, but it, fortunately for me, didn't stop God. And don't think I didn't think I had made a big mistake. The minute I finished, I thought, oh, no. Because I'd been convinced that what I needed to find was the proper metaphysical terminology with which to petition this power's assistance, and he'd help me. And until I learned the right words, I was in real trouble. See, I didn't know that it was okay to be a human being. I didn't know that God loved me when I was afraid. I thought I had to get unafraid so God could love me. See? Because I couldn't be afraid and be loved at home. I had to get unafraid. I had to need nothing. Then I was okay. So I didn't believe you could go to this God needing anything. I only believed I could go to this God if I was all right. I worked hard trying to be okay the first four and a half years. I was convinced if I could become a good credit application, God would love me. I don't know where I made that connection. I have no idea. It's like if Sears and Roebuck will accept me, God will love me. You know, it's... Uh, I have no idea where that came from, but I put that one together. Next day I went to work and broke my back. Freak accident. Crushed two vertebrae in my back. Taken to the emergency hospital. Doctors look at me and say, okay, you can't go back to this line of work anymore. Can't lift anything heavy. Yada, 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 And they walk out of this cubicle I'm laying in. <clears throat> my mind says to me, see? Huh? I've been telling you for four and a half goddamn years not to pray. Last night you prayed, today you broke your back. Suddenly a voice I never heard before from down in here, a little voice said, why don't you shut up? Now suddenly I'm laying there in this cubicle in an emergency hospital and I find myself put in the position of a moderator. <clears throat> I have voices coming from here and voices coming from here. And who am I supposed to listen to? So I thought, I'll listen to the voice from here because I've been listening to these all my life and it hadn't gone too well up until a moment. And these little voices just kind of assured me that everything was okay. And there was nothing wrong with breaking my back, that my life was in perfect order, perfect order, to just let it go and just do what was put in front of me to do. And while people all around me are saying, oh God, it's terrible, you broke your back. Oh, what are you gonna do now? I just kept saying, I have no idea, no idea. I'm going to show up for vocational rehabilitation, and I'm going to show up for my disability insurance, and I'm going to show up at the doctor's office and get my braces and or whatever else I had to wear for my back, and that's it. That's all I can do. And I did that for six months. Had terrible problems with voc rehab. Terrible problems. Because they couldn't classify me, because I kept taking the aptitude tests and I kept coming up different things, you know. <clears throat> and they thought it was a joke, and I said, this is no joke. One day I like the outdoors, one day I don't like the outdoors. You know, what the... What the hell you want me to tell you, you know? Some days I feel mechanically inclined, some days I don't, you know? <clears throat> but they couldn't figure out what to do with me. They wanted to make me a social worker. In light of my experience in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, they thought they'd get me a high school equivalency test and send me to UCLA for four years, get me a bachelor's in psychology and make me a social worker. I said, my God, woman, didn't you read the police records in front of you, for Christ's sake? The Board of Criminal Psychiatry of the state of California says I'm a homicidal social psychopath. You know, I and mean, if you miss the point, I don't like people, you know. 
<laughs> and I've never seen that as a prerequisite for a social worker, you know. <clears throat> Six months later, after going through this insanity once a week, I would pick up the television guide and I read it, and there was a little article in there about becoming a writer. And this little guy lives down here inside of me, says to me, let's try that. My mind says, oh, be silly. Not listening to my mind, I take the ad out of TV guide, I go into voc rehab, I give it to my counselor, she laughs the heart, she almost fell out of her wheelchair, right? <laughs> she thought it was hysterical, right? She knew, she knew the facts, the facts were in front of her. I failed English ever since the fourth grade. <clears throat> I'm a phonetic speller. I was thrown out of high school in the 10th grade. I had never written anything in my life, didn't know anything about writing. She thought it was humorous that I should want to be a writer. Took it into her boss, gave it to him. He would have agreed to anything, anything, just to get me off their books, man, and get me out the door. He said, get them the books, send for the course, pay for the course. So God just outweighed the bureaucracy, which I thought was rather clever of him, you know? He just... <clears throat> and fortunately, I was in a place where I was patient, didn't have to go crazy and blow my brains out while I was waiting for all this to be worked out. So anyway, to make a long story short, I became a writer. Highly successful writer. Been doing it for 20 years, writing for television. Made astronomical amounts of money. Astronomical amounts of money. But that night, four and a half years sober, when I screamed to God, actually I was a month away from my, two months away from my fifth birthday, when I screamed to God, I wanted to die more than anything else in the world. I didn't want to kill myself anymore. I just wanted to die. I wanted to sit there in that little apartment, on that bed, four years and ten months sober, and die. And I surrendered instead. And God kept his word. Kept his word. He gave me absolutely everything. Everything. Success. Respect of my peers. Financial success. Everything I could have asked for. Everything I could have asked for. Little Bobby. Drug addict, alcoholic, writing for television, making big bucks going home, sitting down, seeing his name on the television screen. Didn't even know how to enjoy it, man. First night I watched my first show ever go on the air, I sat there quietly with some friends and watched it. Somebody said to me, aren't you excited? I said, yes, very much. <laughs> they should have had to come get me running down the street naked and bring me back to the house is what they should have had to do, you know. <clears throat> But I couldn't, I had to be neat and clean emotionally, see? I had to be fine. And to be fine, I had to be quiet. I had to say, yeah, it excites me. Thank you very much. <laughs> 17 years later, man, 17 years clean and sober, active member of AA, going to meetings. By next point, I've written 32 inventories, sponsored I don't know how many people. I'm driving 40,000 miles a year, probably minimum, a miles to carry the message. Sat on the edge of a bed, and the only thing that had changed was the surroundings. I wanted to die. I wanted to die more than anything in the world. The only thing that had changed is now it was a penthouse apartment at the beach, and there was an expensive car in the garage, and one more gorgeous young girlfriend, you know, living in the apartment. One more gorgeous young expensive girlfriend living in the apartment. <clears throat> well, sad a lot of trouble having relationships because if you're not in touch with your feelings, you don't have anything to give another person. So my problem was, you know, I was, I, would, I was great for the first three weeks, and from there it was downhill. 
in that moment where you spot the other person across the room, I was wonderful, you know, and that you feel that magnetic, you know, it's like, I didn't even be a thousand people in the room and you just sort of gravitate to each other. You should know there's trouble the minute that starts, but forget that. <clears throat> because we're coming for two different reasons across the room. See? They look at us guys and they see him. Him. You know? Sir Lancelot. White horse. Armor. Oiled and greased, not creaky, shiny. Hence, Lance. Gonna ride across the room, scoop him up, and take care of him. I, on the other hand, see... Mom! <laughs> so we're going to have some trouble early on. See what I mean? But we don't know that yet because we're caught in the heat of this moment. We're caught in this heat. Bang! We come together, disappear, drop out of sight, don't see anybody for three weeks, right? Caught up in the passion and the music and the fireworks and everything. It's wonderful. Sponsors are going crazy, calling each other. She's going to get drunk. I know. God, she left with a guy with a beard. What's going to happen? Then about three weeks later, you surface to no support from anybody anywhere. And there you are. Now you've got a relationship on your hands. And after a few days, the woman would turn to me and go, I had no idea what the hell she wanted. None. None. So... I had a vaudeville routine that worked quite well that I had put together, and I would do song number one. I'd get her up, out of bed, take her in the living room, go through the phonograph albums, pull out one, say, on this album is the, is the most important song of my life. I can't play this song without shedding tears. I have waited forever to share this song with somebody, put it on, play it, cry, and just not tell her that I played it for 37 others. It wasn't, it, it didn't seem important at the moment, you know. Couple weeks go by, there they are again. Something else. Now it's dance number one. Up, out of the house, in the car, drive down to Malibu, walk along the cliffs, down the goat path, over the rocks, back to this little cove, and say, this is my most special spot on the face of the earth. I used to come here to shoot morphine. This place has been, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I have prayed here, meditated here, petitioned God for help here. This is my sacred place, and I want to share it with you. And ignore the footprints of the 37 others in the sand. It's not important. And it would go like that. And the only thing that becoming a writer gave me was a lot of money, which gave me one more dance to do. After I ran out of all the others, I could hand them a credit card. Say, go shopping. Gentlemen, I'm here to testify. No one can shop like an emotionally unhappy woman. <laughs> Slam dunk Rodeo Drive, let me tell you. <laughs> I kept myself broke doing that number. Whoa. And it seemed to be the one they burned out the slowest on, too, you know? But eventually, even that wasn't good enough, and they come back one more time and go, and I'd go, I'd run out of things. I'd run out of stuff. And now, I hate you. And the reason I hate you is you have brought to light what I've known, my secret. Something's wrong with me. I'm not enough. You need something from me, and I can't give it to you. And that means I'm defective. 
I can't say anything to, like, to this to you. I just, you know, if I could communicate that, we wouldn't have the problems we have already. You know, see, but I can't communicate with women because I'm scared to death of them, petrified of a woman's anger. Absolutely, I would just, I freeze emotionally when a woman gets mad. Man gets mad, other story. I go right off the edge of the, you know, spectrum, man. Absolutely nuts. I'm the kind in the first two years of sobriety that was still jumping down, down in the middle of people's hoods and intersections, you know, to try and talk to them about the way they were driving, you know, in a, in a spiritual way that would be approved of by AA, you know. <laughs> Get out of goddamn car! <laughs> 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 I'm just, I'm just supposed to get to this. But, but boy, you let a woman get mad, I just freeze up, just freeze up, absolutely panic, just panic. And if you're afraid of women, guys, that's when you get into these situations. You pick up the newspaper and you say, "Hey, gee, I think maybe it'd be fun to go to a movie." And she says, yeah, great idea. What would you like to see? I think, well, I think I'd really like to see Apocalypse now. I think that's a great film. I don't know. What would you like to see? She says, because I've said, I don't know. She said, I'd like to see April in Paris. I think that's the dumbest goddamn movie ever made anywhere, anytime. Sure, let's go. <laughs> so we go. And I sit through two hours of motion picture wanting to see you die. Because I am not where I want to be and I can't tell you who I am, right? <clears throat> God, this is fun stuff. If you think it's fun getting up here, revealing all this stuff, forget it. I'd much rather get up here and be calm, emotionally clean and neat, cool. Tell you about the miracle of my recovery. <laughs> Give you about 50 minutes of drunk log and 10 minutes of rising from the ashes. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> Well, unfortunately, it didn't go that way. Sobriety's been really an interesting experience. <laughs> I've had to go through all this stuff. Go next. So here I am, 17 years clean and sober, sitting in an apartment wanting to die, and a friend of mine comes up to me and says, I think I'll see a therapist. Give me a break, will you? I mean, I had been a good A sponsor. Any of my babies came to me and asked me, I said, obviously, A and I aren't enough. Go find another sponsor. What I was telling him was absolutely true. <laughs> I didn't know it. <laughs> I had no idea I was telling the truth. It came time. I had no place else to go, man. Seventeen years sober, wanting to die, no place else to go. A couple of things I think had helped me get there. One is I had changed some of my eating habits. When I was ten years sober, I gave up red meats. The woman I was married to I loved very much died from cancer. People that we went to saw red meat as a contributor to cancer. They believed that. After she passed away, I could see no reason to continue to eat it. Gave it up. A few months after that, gave up caffeine. Not caffeine, coffee. Switched to diet colas. <laughs> I thought everybody drank 18 cans of tab a day. <laughs> Everything happened in the morning, I had a can of tab with her cigarette, you know. And I assumed that Rice Krispies, milk, and sugar was a compatible taste combination with tab for everybody else in the world. I had no idea that I was just, you know, trying to get the caffeine out of the, out of the can. Eventually, I gave up the caffeine. And one day when I was about 15 years sober, I was researching a story on suicide. I was at suicide prevention. I'm in a little meeting room with the, the then little group of directors of suicide prevention. I take out my Marlboros and my 
latest super electronic gold butane kill yourself tool. Light my Marlboro. Take a drag. Look around the room. Not one ashtray in the room. Any serious smoker knows that if you're in a room with 10, 12 people, no ashtrays, you're an unfriendly crowd. Right? <laughs> Some guy says, no, no, that's okay. I'll get you an ashtray. No problem. Goes out in the outer office, almost remodels it, right? Opens drawers, slams and bangs, closets, death. Comes in with this platter big enough to put a fish on and sets it in front of me, right? Now, I sit there through this meeting trying to be nonchalant with this fish platter in front of me and my cigarette, right? And then head of suicide prevention looks at me and says, we have an official opinion on cigarette smoking if you're interested. And before my mind could get in there, this little guy down here who hates smoke says, yeah, what is it? He said, well, now that the scientific proof is in that cigarette smoking of and by itself with no other addition in your life can kill you, we view cigarette smoking to be covert suicide. A little tiny gun with a little tiny bullet. I was so happy I asked, you know. I was... Uh, <laughs> one of the bright days of my recovery was... Uh, I like to say I walked out, never smoked another cigarette again. Not true. Smoked for six more months. Worst six months of my life. Every time I lit a cigarette, I could hear the goddamn gun go off. It's like... Sometimes on really paranoid days, I look around to see if anybody else had heard it, you know. <laughs> did, <laughs> did the guy next to me know I just shot myself, you know. <laughs> Gave up the cigarettes, you know. And then I discovered an interesting thing about cigarettes. Apparently, they cure tobacco and sugar. My body lost its major source of sugar. It wanted sugar. It wanted lots of sugar, and it wanted sugar now. Can't eat sugar. Treated it just like drug addiction, alcohol. I'd be sitting quietly at home in a little condominium in Montecito, a sleepy little village in the coast of California. Logs in the fireplace burning at night. Ten minutes to eleven. Saying quietly to myself, there's no ice cream in the house. <laughs> I know. It's not important. <clears throat> I can have a glass of water just like my neighbor and go to bed. Not a big deal. Five minutes of 11, I'm out the door. Dead run to the carport, in the car, 100 miles an hour down San Inez Road to 31 Flavors, broadside to a stop, run through the door about the time the guy's coming the other way with the keys, get my quart of pralines and cream, my quart of butterscotch topping, and my jar of dry-roasted cashews, and go home and get a bowl. I don't mean a chicken shit little cereal bowl, I mean a bowl. <laughs> And make a Sunday. Being hypoglycemic, I would immediately go unconscious after it was over. <laughs> Which was what I wanted anyway, because I was in a marriage with a woman that had already given me the laugh, and I had no idea what the hell to do, you know. So I'd rather be out there on the couch, man, nodded out behind sugar, than in there dealing with her, you know, in the bedroom. Forget that one, right? <clears throat> And one day I realized I just bought a pair of pants and they didn't fit. I was getting quite large. I probably weighed 50 pounds more than I weigh now. And I looked at these pants that wouldn't fasten the next day after I bought them and a little voice said, you can have all the sugar you want, but these are the biggest pants you'll ever own. <laughs> a friend of mine said, eat red apples. Must have eaten six cases the first month. But got off the sugar. 
So now I'm off sugar, not smoking, sitting in my penthouse, wanting to die. <laughs> Went to see therapist, woman. Figured they were my problem. See a woman. Maybe I could get the secret, or you know, get a little peace in my life. <clears throat> Sat down. Don't even get me started, girls. Don't even think about it. You know, we have our songs and dances, but one of their favorite ones, guys, this is their all-time favorite. This is their secret closet one that they love. It's when they look at you with starry eyes and say, I've never done this with anybody before. (laughs) And we don't have any self-esteem or we'd ask them how come they know how. So I go see this lady, and she sits me down, and she says, all right, start with your childhood, tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, well, when I was 15 years of age, they threw me out of manual arts high school. I discovered the wonderful world of drugs and alcohol, spent the next 11 years in the streets <clears throat> drinking alcohol, using drugs, and smuggling narcotics. I said, I've been clean and sober in programs of AA and NA for 17 years. She said, wait a minute. I said, starting with your childhood, you weren't born at 15. I said, geez, I don't remember it. Now, I had written 32 inventories. 32 inventories. I had taken 32 fifth steps. No one ever said a word to me about what happened the first 15 years of your life. And the reason nobody said a word to me about what happened the first 15 years of your life is they couldn't remember the first 15 years of their life either. They thought it was perfectly normal. We're like that, you know. I, I can't remember and you can't remember. I assume it's okay. If I can remember and you, I can't remember and you can, I think there's something wrong with me. Or you. Or both of us. But I don't, I don't understand it. So I, <clears throat> anyway, she got this strange smile on her face. And at the time, I perceived it to be a self-serving smile. I thought the smile said, uh-huh. When I get done writing the paper on this sucker, I'm going to get the recognition I've been working for all these years. I didn't know her smile said that if you have the courage to stick this out, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that you've never met, you. And I'm going to introduce you to a little boy that lives inside of you that you've never met. And I'm going to be present when you meet both of them. And that's going to be a joy. And that's what she was smiling about. Well, we stuck it out, she and I. Went to work. We dug back. What did we find? A lot of stuff that just isn't uncommon, you know? Just isn't uncommon. A mother who spent her life in the kitchen because it was safer there than any place else in the house and a drunken father who was, you know, a drunken father who had nothing to give. Not a thing. Creating a child who had no more tools for coping or functioning than the man in the moon. Never been okay. I was raised in secrecy and silence and deceit and violence. Don't know how to talk to people. Wasn't taught how to talk to people. Don't know how to be a social person. There was nothing social going on in my house. The big event was every Christmas. We went to the guy's house that owned the liquor store for Christmas. I think he felt guilty and had my dad over, you know. 
because <clears throat> we were living in abject poverty thanks to his drinking. And we started to dig back. We wanted to find out why, what happened. The best story I can tell to sum it up is this one. I'll tell you two. And I think it's time to quit. I don't know what time I started. What time did we start? Okay. Got the boss over here. I'm... <clears throat> Oh, good. We'll take a vote. Let's have a vote. No, kidding. Don't. Um, so uh, I had started to run as a result of all this health consciousness, and friends of mine uh, <clears throat> were. I was having a little trouble running because I my feet don't go straight. <clears throat> so they took me aside and they said to me, "Look, the best sports medicine podiatrist in the world is in Long Beach. Go see him. He's going to make you a couple of little." orthotics for your shoes it's going to straighten out your feet you're going to be able to run further faster easier I lived in Santa Monica Long Beach is 35 miles away I won't drive me 35 miles to the doctor I'll drive you 35 miles to the doctor you could call me up on the phone and say Bob I got to go see this foot specialist in Long Beach to get my feet fixed so I can run okay can you pick me up and take me my car is in the shop I gotta be there today. I'd come pick you up and take you. But I won't take me that far, see? I don't know how to take care of me. I I know people will tell you that's spiritual. That I'll take you and not me. <laughs> I don't know where they get that conception of God, but it's a cute one, you know. <clears throat> it's a real cute one. So I go see this guy <clears throat> in Century City, actually a woman, brunette, quite cute, really. She made some orthotics and they were wrong. I went out and ran three miles and my back went out and I was bent over like this, you know. My friends say, go see these guys in Pasadena. Best sports medicine chiropractors in the world. They work with the Olympic athletes. Pasadena is 35 miles in the other direction from Santa Monica. I also won't drive myself there. I go see a guy in a marina who's about 75 pounds overweight and smokes and doesn't even know what the word running means. By the time he's done with me, I'm like this. So I drive myself to Pasadena. <laughs> I see the doctors. He's right. Three treatments are great. I feel wonderful. They say, go to Long Beach and see the guy in Long Beach. I go to Long Beach. I go in. I sit down. I'm sitting in this office in this stupid chair where your feet are straight out in front of you. And the nicest guy I ever met in my life comes in. Gentle, beautiful guy. And immediately goes from my right foot, picks it up, turns it a half a dozen different directions. He says, what the hell happened to your right foot? I said, I don't know why. He says, it's practically a club foot. I said, maybe I was born that way. He says, no, it's not a birth defect. He says, this is something that transpired. It's a change in the structure of the foot that came happened after you've been born. And suddenly I felt like I wanted to throw up. I didn't know why. And I was mad and I didn't know why. And I wanted to cry and I didn't know why. I just had all this stuff going on. I said, I don't know what happened. I got in the car and I drove home. I got home and I'm walking around and I'm nuts in the apartment. I don't understand why I feel so bad. My mother calls. God's timing is marvelous. My mother just come from her foot doctor. She's complaining he didn't cut her toenails straight. I said to my mother, as long as we're on the subject of feet, what happened to mine? Hmm. For any of you to begin this process of going back and trying to find out who you are, what you're about, and how you got where you are, be prepared to not get a lot of information or help from the original dynamic duo. <clears throat> After questioning her a few more times, she says, well, you had real high arches when you were a kid and we had to buy you special shoes. And they cost a lot of money, very expensive shoes. And she reiterated, 
uh, the, the few times that they were expensive shoes, expensive shoes, expensive shoes. And finally I hung up the phone and I sat down on the couch and I felt like I wanted to just die. I wanted to cry and I wanted to go away. I wanted to disappear. And I stayed up all night and paced. I'm a pacer when I'm sick and uncomfortable emotionally. The next day I went into my therapist's office. She said, how are you? And I went, <coughs> I no longer said fine. She said, well, let's go back and see what we can discover. We went back and we found me about two and a half years old standing in a hallway in an apartment building in Denver, Colorado with tears streaming down my face. And I was pointing to my right shoe and I was telling my mother that my right shoe was small and it hurt. It hurt my foot so bad I was crying. And my mother looked at me and she said, shh, not too loud. Your father will hear and he'll get angry. When I finished with that little piece of information, I understood why all my life I felt like something was wrong with me. Why something was so terribly wrong with me. Because if you can't have shoes that fit, you must not be worth much. And I understood why I knew I wasn't enough. Why all my life I felt like I wasn't enough. Now people will say, Jay, come on, man, lighten up. Will you get off that crap? You know, sell my old man drink. Big goddamn deal. You know, hey, if I'm responsible for how I turned out today, do you really want that responsibility? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm delighted to give full credit to the original dynamic duo for how I turned out. Not blame. Not blame. Just responsibility. The best I've ever heard it put by anybody is I knew a girl who was celebrating her first birthday in AA. Her mother who had four years and didn't have any money and couldn't send her a present. Call her on the phone. She said, look, this is your first birthday. And she said, the only thing I can give you for a present is this. She said, I want you to understand that I, your mother, am responsible for most of the problems that you have in your sobriety. I'm responsible for the fact that you do not know how to have a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. I'm responsible for the fact you do not know how to be a mother with your own children so they're living with my ex-husband. I'm responsible for the fact you do not know how to hold a job. I'm responsible for the fact you do not know how to express your feelings nor are you in touch with them. She said, so remember, I am responsible. She said, but on this, your first birthday in AA, please, please understand you're responsible for the solutions to those problems. That's fine with me. That's fine with me. I can accept that. As the minute I know it ain't my fault, man, that I can't put my life together, then I can go about doing it. But as long as my basic insides are screaming at me, something's wrong with me, I'll, I'll sum it up this way. This story may drive some of you nuts. And it, may, you know, it may seem unimportant, but... Here I am, going along through life, man. I'm a, you know, sober member of AA, junior guru, speaker, writer, you know, whatever the hell, bounding down the... I've been married five times in sobriety. <laughs> now, I'd love to stand up here and tell you I got married back in 1957 and been married for 30 years. I actually have a daughter 30 years old, come to think about it. I can't tell you that. I've been married five times. How come? What the hell is wrong? You know? And I used to beat myself up over this one man. I'd sit home. I'd sit home and watch the Osmond Family Christmas Show, right? 
okay? And they'd all be gathered around the fireplace, the whole family, and everybody would be singing carols and logs burning and presents under the tree. And I'd be sitting in my apartment with tears streaming down my face because my goddamn heart was broken because I knew I could never have that. I knew I was such a failure that something was so wrong with me that I would never ever be able to experience sitting in a room like that with people who love me that I love sharing some kind of special holiday. I don't spend holidays with my family. I won't do that to me anymore. The day after maybe, but not the holiday. <laughs> I have this small child lives inside of me, doesn't want to go. <laughs> See, children's intuition is perfect. Your intuition, your intuitiveness is okay. It's intact. Screw all the using and drug addiction and alcoholism and everything you did. Your intuition is still fine. It's fine. It's always been fine. We just don't listen to it. It requires self-esteem to listen to it. Because you may have to go against the crowd. All your life it has spoken to you. I have gone down the aisle, man, to the minister to get married. And the little guy said, I don't think this is a good idea. You know? We really shouldn't be here. <laughs> and the other thing is, you say, okay, well, talk to God, surrender to God. To surrender to God, the God I understand is a spiritual existence is moment to moment, meaning change is continuous. Change is continuous. In order to be able to have continuous change in my life, I've got to be spontaneous. People with no self-esteem can't be spontaneous. we got to be prepared. I can't be spontaneous and be prepared. You know, God wants me to walk down the street, man, turn left, without knowing what the hell's around the corner. I can't do that. i got to know what's around the corner. If I go around the corner and don't know what's there, you might catch me off guard. I might look foolish. Well, I can't look foolish. If I look foolish, you're going to know something's wrong with me. So i got to look good. So I can't go around the corner. Thank you very much. I'd like to go. I've had friends come to me and offer me new experiences all the time. Let's go here, man. It's, we got this great thing. It's going down to the beach to this 3 a.m. morning trampoline meditation class on the sand. You know, i got to tell you, it's terrific. You should just feel the presence of God as you leap into the air to the stars, you know. I say, oh, I'd really like to go, but i got to pick a newcomer up uh, and take him to a meeting. But I'd be there. <laughs> Go back to self-esteem some other time. Well, anyway. So, here I am. I can't have a decent relationship. Doesn't matter how hard I try. Doesn't matter how many books I read on it. Nothing's going together for me. Absolutely don't understand why. Here a little while ago, I moved to Santa Fe. And it was, uh, the move to Santa Fe coincided with the, with the termination of a relationship. And... Um, about a year or so ago, and this lady and I had decided that we wanted to work really hard to maintain friends, to be friends, to no matter what. Let me back the story up. I was flying home from a meet, from a convention, and I was on an airplane. I landed in, in, in Phoenix and changed airplanes. I got an airplane, sat down next to this little kid. He's about eight years old next to me. See, I'd go to these ACA meetings, and I'd listen to kids talk about being beaten, and I'd cry and sob, and I'd leave the meeting going, <laughs> think, Oh, your empathy is so strong. You're really an understanding guy. You know, for, for somebody that really wasn't beaten a lot, you really had a lot of compassion. You know, as I go to my car thinking, why does it tear me up like that? So now I get on this plane. This little guy sitting next to me. Kids love me on planes, see? Because they've never seen a kid this big, you know. 
<laughs> so, I mean, when they go, I go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care, right? So I'm sitting out with this kid, and we're going, you know, making faces. Up. He says, can I put my head in your lap? I said, yeah, great. Got a pillow. He put his head in my lap. He laid it for a little while. He's tied up, and he's kind of fidgeting. I said, do you like teddy bears? He said, yeah. I said, well, I got one you can hold, at least to Albuquerque. He was going on the telephone. So I zipped my bag. I always take bears with me when I travel. I take this great teddy bear I had at the time. This guy's wonderful. He's from Santa Fe. He wears a red kerchief and a mountain hat and a, and a sheepskin vest, you know. <laughs> so I give him to the kid in the hole, and, and the kid's saying, you know, my dog died. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. That's very sad. He says, yeah, I'm mad at my dad, you know. It's my dad's fault my dog died. I said, How, why do you think it's your dad's fault your dog died? It's because he let him out. I and mean, he knew if he let him out that he'd be hurt. You know, he'd get hit by a car and get killed. And I said, oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think your dad let him out intentionally when he get killed. The little guy looks at me and says, yeah, yes, he did. Yes, he did. I know he did. He says, you know, because my dad's not a nice guy. You know, he says, my dad hits me here, you know, and he hits me here, and he hits me here, and he hits me here, you know. He says, and he hits my mom. It's my mom. Nobody's going to hit my mom. You know, he says, I'm just coming from my grandpa's. And in two weeks, my grandpa's going to come out here back to where we live. And he's going to take care of it, you know, so nobody hits my mom anymore. I'm sitting next to this little guy. My heart's breaking. My heart's breaking. I got off the plane in Albuquerque. And I'm, I have one real strong feeling about all this stuff and this information, man. If you get a hold of it and you get in touch with it, you belong to a very big society and you better become a responsible part of it. And if you're sitting around letting it go on next door, man, you're the one that's rotten inside, not them. You're the one that's going to die behind it. So I go into the Albuquerque police in the airport and say, look, there's a kid on this plane flying. It's all... Anyway, they weren't interested, you know, right? I'd like to tell you I made a, a proud, but I have a real hard time with law enforcement officers who are uncooperative, so maybe someday I'll go back and apologize. <laughs> I haven't found it necessary yet, however... <clears throat> I go in and out of that airport a lot. Anyhow, I went on and I said, I, you know, I just knew I had to do something. Got in the phone booth and got on the telephone and called the Tulsa police. And they didn't care at the downtown precinct, but they transferred me to the precinct at the airport. And I got to the precinct at the airport and I said to this guy, look, you got a kid on the plane, man. He's being beaten by his father. His mother's being beaten. You know, and his granddad isn't going to be there to help him for two weeks. And two weeks is too long. Somebody's got to do something. And this cop says to me, I'll get on the plane before he gets a chance to get off. And I'll have a talk to him. We'll see what we can do. And I sat in that phone booth and I just started to sob. Because I, I could picture myself being this little boy in this little seat. And this big cop getting on and saying, Man, how can I help you? Help is finally here. And I felt so good. And I went home. Now... This relationship is dissolved. We're trying to maintain a friendship. And one day she calls me, and someone decided to call her and tell her that there was someone else in my life, one of our friends. And she calls me on the phone, and for I don't know why, I mean, we're living 5,000 miles apart, right? Goes off like a skyrocket, ah, screaming and yelling, what a son of a bitch, and I'm, you know, like, and I hung up the phone and I was paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed emotionally. Spent two days. Now, here's a guy, by this time I'm 24 years sober, you know, got a lot of recovery behind me, frozen, frozen by a phone call. Go out, I could feed myself, I could take my clothes to the laundry, I could come home and sit down, that's it. I can't do anything else. Not too good example of recovery, is it? 
called my therapist on the phone and said, I'm in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. This woman called me screaming, yelling, and went over the edge, and I'm paralyzed, and I know it has nothing to do with her. Got on a plane, flew into L.A., sat down, and the woman says, okay, before we start, tell me one thing. Have you ever struck a woman in your life? I said, yes. I hit my first wife once. I hit her with the back of my hand so hard, I knocked her clear across the living room into the fireplace because I wasn't hitting her to hurt her, I was hitting her to kill her. She said, okay, let's go back and see what we can find. She'd been waiting for this one for eight years. I didn't, I didn't know that, of course. I was just walking around thinking, I'm okay. You know, hell, I didn't know. I thought we were done. I hadn't seen her in months. <clears throat> anyway, what we found, to make a long story short, is I had been beaten senseless by my mother for about three years. And I should have known this a long time ago. I took a report card to her once, my very first report card from school. And I said, it says here I missed so much school, they wouldn't give me a grade. What was wrong? I don't know. You must have been sick. You must have been sick. We figured a beating stopped when I finally had to go to school. She explained to him, you see why you can never have a, any kind of communication with, with, with a female woman is because you don't know how to distinguish between somebody expressing their anger and a real threat. Now you might say, gee, well, how important is that to recovery? I don't know. I think it's real important. I think it's real important. Because now I feel like maybe I can have a decent relationship with another human being. Today I'm in a lovely relationship with an absolutely incredible woman. And we're going to have a child in January. I'm saying something we really want. You know, I'm 25 years sober. I don't know kids. My kids are, you know, a product of my drinking and using and signed away for adoption to their my ex-wife's husband and raised by somebody else and we have no thing. And I'm going to get a chance. To, uh, you know, I'm going to get a chance to be a dad. Well, I'm glad I didn't do it before. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I have the chance now. So what I'm trying to say to you is this. The AA program gives us permission to use all the tools necessary that we need to use for recovery. It's written in the book. Our founders were seekers. My opinion. Bill and Dr. Bob never stopped looking for better ways and more things to do. I mean, they used to hold seances, for Christ's sakes. Guys, come on, lighten up, will ya? We don't even know how much of our program came from the other side. You know, I mean, let's not, let's not get so entrenched here on this stuff, you know? And there's a lot of information out today about things, you know, about problems. I mean, I've, I've, the Bill's thing about his depressions, the finite hyperthyroid, taking a simple little hormone, lessen some of the depression. I've watched other people make that discovery and recovery and get better. But you guys have been sober for a while, you're sponsoring people. When is the last time you took a really troublesome baby? You know, the guy, man, is driving you nuts, right? He's always depressed, he always wants to die, he, you know, he works the goddamn steps and they don't work for him, scroll you, you know. He brings an inventory to you and reads it and feels worse after than he did before he came, you know. And he calls you in the middle of the night. When's the last time you put this guy in a car and drove him to a doctor for a simple physical to see if maybe there's just not some little thing that can be done to put him in a place where he can understand what we're trying to offer him here, what we're trying to give him. So AA to me is a table. On this table, I'm putting this picture puzzle back together. And it's great. And it's coming together. And I'm now, you know, the thing that blows me away now is, they used to say in the beginning, don't talk to yourself in the mirror. Tell yourself I love you. I'd walk into the bathroom. 
Oh man, you're the sickest son of a bitch I ever knew. And turn around and walk away. Today, boy, I catch myself, glance at myself as I walk by a mirror or a window or something somewhere and I smile. I smile. I like this guy. You know, if I want to see self-esteem today, I go look in my eyes. My eyes in the mirror. If I want to see God today, I just look in my eyes. I don't have to look for it in anybody else anymore. You know, I'm coming alive. So here I stand, 25 years sober, 51 and a half years old, about to get married, about to have a baby. My whole life, man, I'm just getting going here. You know, I'm just, I'm just... You see, this isn't the end here, it's the beginning. But when you're sponsoring people and working with people, man, see the young people coming in today, man, they got too much information. They know that what you eat affects how you feel emotionally. So they get crazy at you. I'll, the best example when I'll sit down and shut up. I got a couple of guys a while back, a few years back, about three or four years ago, came into the program. These guys, man, they had been everywhere. They were raised as vegetarians by their parents. They had spent their lives traveling the world seeking God. They had spent years in India walking with gurus and in the caves of the Himalayas and with the yogas. They'd been up in the Himalayas. They'd watched the changing of the high lamas. They had spent, you know, a year and a half with Himalayan priests walking small paths through the mountains into the back roads of China. They had walked barefoot in the snow with Edgar Cayce's people on the beach in Virginia Beach in the winter looking for the world beyond. I mean, they had been all over the globe consuming all this stuff. And the one problem they had assimilating the information they're getting is that the heroin they were using was confusing them. They came into the program. I gave them the big book and said, here. Now, I have never before or since in 25 years seen this reaction to the big book. Oh, this is great. Great. These guys were far out, man. The stuff they put in here is incredible. Look at this fifth chapter. These 12 steps are absolute perfect path to any kind of a relationship with a divine human being. My God, it's incredible, this stuff. This is beautiful. I've never seen... Promises are right on. If you do this, you got to get that. That's the law of the universe. This is incredible, right? I'm, I'm sitting there going, where the hell did they come from, you know? What are they doing? One of them had about six months in the program. He walked into one of our illustrious clubhouses in the valley in Southern California. And here, sitting by the door in his chair, was one of our 35-year-old sober old-timers. He's been in that chair all of his goddamn life with his nicotine-stained fingers and his 30th cup of coffee for the morning and his pile of cookies in front of him. And this young guy walked in and looked at him and said, What are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He says, man, God has given you another opportunity in life. You have been put on a path of life for Christ's sakes. You got it all. He's given it all to you. He's opened the door. He's given you a starting place. And you're sitting here killing yourself. You know? Can do something? guy looked at him and said, when you're sober as long as I am, you'll understand. 
Well, I sure hope I don't, you know. <laughs> I don't want to understand. This is a beautiful process here, man. And if you... All I'm trying... All I want you to do is feel a little bit better about who you are and the process you're on. And all I want you to know is my experiences may not be yours. You may want to tar and feather me, you know. My experience has been that I've needed to use these additional tools in my recovery, which is permission is granted by AA to do that. See? I'm not saying go away from AA, leave AA, stop being part of AA. It's the table, man. You're not going to build anything without it. You're not going to build anything without it. But be with supportive people. Get some tools. Go to work. God bless you.